In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Christ is in our midst. That's good. Especially over here. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we find uh, consolation in that reality. The unity of truth has manifested in the person of Christ as love, as self-sacrifice, as the one who wants to be known and who wants us to wants who wants to be known and wants to know us. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. At the same time, His mercies are new every morning. And not even just every morning, but constantly. Constantly. And that's why, as Christians, we should never get bored. We're never bored. Well, sometimes we are. Sometimes we're even distracted. But we should never get bored because the life of God is all we need. The presence of God, ever new, ever constant. And that's worth living for. It's actually the basis of our life, we would say. The breath of God, which is not just a source of life, but a source of meaning and relationship. That's the appetizer. Here's the entree. Today I want to talk specifically about the fact that in that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, we have a witness to that in the church that has taken place over the course of history through various councils. The Orthodox Church is often referred to as the Church of the Seven Councils. Today, particularly, we celebrate, we remember the fathers of the Seventh Ecumenical Council. In Orthros, we heard a little summary of this council, and I want to talk to you a little bit about its significance. But not even specifically about this council in particular, but what the councils represent and the conciliar nature of the church, which we've talked about, but I feel like it, I wanted to speak on the gospel reading today, but I was moved to talk about this instead today. So I'll give you a summary of this council first. It's, it met in 787, in the eighth century, to refute the iconoclast heresy. These were the people who said that Icons, not only were they unnecessary, but they were an abomination. Iconoclast, as you probably remember, means someone who would smash the icon. Another way to interpret it would be icon smasher. And this council met to refute this, what was considered a heresy. They believed that all depictions of Christ and his mother and the saints should be destroyed. And that the iconophiles, those who love icons, 
They believe that icons serve to preserve the doctrinal, doctrinal teachings of the church. And they consider icon, icons to be man's dynamic way of expressing the divine through art and beauty, just like God expressed himself dynamically through the incarnation in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The council decreed that the veneration of icons was not idolatry. I'll give you a little side note. A lot of times people think the term graven images means images that are like dead, like having to do with the grave. You know, people say you shouldn't worship graven images. Graven means engraved. Engraved. So I've heard many people say, oh, those are images of dead things. They're graven images. No, no, they're engraved. But it's not idolatry. It's not the worship of any kind of graven or even painted. It's not the worship of even a painted image. Because the honor shown to them is not directed to the wood or to the paint, but passes to the prototype. This is the articulate teaching of St. Basil the Great. When we venerate the icon, it passes to the prototype or to the person depicted. The council also upheld the possibility of depicting Christ who became man and took flesh. The Father, on the other hand, can't be represented in his eternal nature because, as we hear in the Gospel of John, first chapter, no man has seen God at any time. Although we hear in the teaching of Christ, in, in his very words, when he was said, show us the Father, what did he say? Basically, aren't you, how could you be so dull? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. God of God, as we say in the creed, which upholds, serves to uphold and articulate the belief in the unchanging one. So today I want to talk about that reality of the seamlessness of the garment of Christ, which is the theology of the church. As much as we'd like to consider ourselves to be intuitive beings, in tune with the mysterious source of existence, and aware, see, I'm aware of that which is beyond words. The reality is that we're rational creatures as well. And this by God's design. We're not totally intuitive, nor totally intellectual. We're created to come to know God, come to know Him, much less to know about Him, much more to know God with an intimacy that can be likened to an ever-deepening union of intimacy, of closeness, of unconditional love, of wordless wonder, you say. Words are never sufficient, that's why we keep piling them up. <laughs> we try to talk about that which is beyond description. We're created with the capacity for true knowledge, with the faculty that we refer to as the nous. You've heard this before. N-O-U-S. Nous. It's a Greek word and it's a biblical word. Which means our faculty of direct perception. True perception. We're also created with the ability to choose. Of course, we have free will. 
and to express it. These are both God-given creative capacities that can be used to ever deepen our experience of Him or to create, in place of Him, idols of our own making. You see, in order for us to have the true freedom to know and to love God, we have to have the ability to exercise our will freely. This is one of the hallmarks of our faith. We see the affirmation of this in today's liturgical theme, the commemoration of the fathers of the Seventh Ecumenical Council, because they were those who both experienced and expressed the reality of life in Christ. We call them luminous stars upon the earth. By exercise of the will, we have come to manufacture, to create various thoughts and preferences and agendas far beyond or beneath what's been revealed to us. And this exercise of the will has been adopted by people as a means of self-authority or autonomy. It's a corruption of our creative capacity and it's resulted in many idolatries of the mind. Creation of concepts that find their origin not in God through Christ by the Holy Spirit but as an attempt to redefine or rediscover or recreate the truth that's been revealed in Christ. These attempts have often resulted in the origination of new doctrines that have served as the basis for entire systems of beliefs that have separated themselves from the living tradition held within orthodoxy. This has been going on since the inception of humanity and has been pronounced in light of the incarnation of Christ and the establishment of the church. In the Orthodox Church, we live our theology. So we believe what we pray, and we pray what we believe. But we also strive to bear witness to the authority of truth revealed in Christ himself, passed down through the ages, formulated and articulated, often apophatically or mystically and poetically by our God-inspired forebears. The Church as a community of saints, uninterrupted, un, uninterruptedly delivers from generation to generation the one Christ, the true Christ, in the midst of various heretic forgeries of him. This is accomplished through the sermons and poetic writings of the Holy Fathers, the ecumenical synods, the liturgical practice, and the spiritual lifestyle of the struggling faithful. The very words of Christ reveal something to us about the authority of truth. The Lord said to his disciples, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Christ our God, the embodiment of truth, claimed authority not in and of himself, but always pointed to the Father. This reveals to us the importance of the living continuity of truth, its acceptance and articulation to the world. This first happened in the person of Christ, and it now happens through his body, the church. 
Christ has a relationship of mutual abiding with the Father. And those who constitute the church abide in Christ in such a way, in fulfillment of Christ's high priestly prayer, a prayer that's offered for us, really. That they may be one even as we are one. Remember when Christ was saying this prayer, he said, Father, in the presence of the apostles, he said, I pray not for them alone, but for those who would come after them, that they may be one, Father, as you are in me and I am in you, that they may be one. That was a prayer for us, a challenging one, and one that we have to seek to fulfill in our lives by the grace of the Holy Spirit. This unity is something that has been fought for spiritually and theologically, which really can't be separated. It's been fought for from the beginning of the church. Martyrs bore witness to the unity of the faith. We've talked about icons many times, and the fact is, people were so committed to the reality that the belief that the, the use of the icon is a theological witness to the reality of the incarnation of Christ, that they were willing to shed their blood and even die in the face of those who would destroy the icons. Much blood was shed over this controversy. Can you believe it? They died for this. They gave their lives. Again, not just for the piece of wood and the paint, but for the one who's revealed, whose truth is revealed as the incarnate God through the icon. So, the church has fought for this. They've adhered to their belief in the unity of Christ, and we continue to. To the three-person nature of the Trinity, to the revelation of God and His mysterious incarnational action in the church from the beginning. Today's commemoration of the Fathers of the Seventh Ecumenical Council represents a significant event in the articulation of doctrine. And what is doctrine? But doctrine is just truth as revealed and spoken through the church. Which can only be spoken with humble authority. While I was preparing, I was remembering the beautiful words of the hymns from the Sunday of the Fathers of the First Ecumenical Council, which reveal the nature of this reality. And they carry forward and ring true for today's feast. The hymn goes like this. The preaching of the apostles and the doctrines of the fathers confirmed the one faith in the church. And wearing the garment of truth woven from the theology on high, she rightly divideth and glorifieth the great mystery of piety. In the lofty preaching of the church of God, let us hearken as she crieth, He that thirsteth, let him come and drink. The cup which I bear is the cup of wisdom. Its drink have I mixed with the word of truth. I pour forth water, not of contention, but of confession. As Israel doth now drink thereof, it beholdeth God, who saith, See, see that I am he, I have not changed. I am God, I am first. I am hereafter, and besides me there is no other. Hence they that partake shall be filled, 
and shall praise the great mystery of piety. I'm also reminded of the words of the Holy Apostle Paul, as many as been, have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. We're united in that single, seamless garment of Christ, bound to one another. We're adorned with His likeness. We become like Him. And of course, we constantly proclaim that the church is the body of Christ. Many of us became Orthodox because we were tired of thinking that Christ, the garment that we put on, is as one that can be split up into little pieces and divided. But Christ cannot be divided. His body cannot be sundered into parts. The seamless garment of Orthodox theology is the raiment with which the mystery of Christ is presented to the rational world. It's presented as a revelation from God to man. In a mystery, yes, but a revelation that can't be compromised. So we don't use the word mystery in order to dilute the truth. That's just a mystery. We don't use it as a cop-out. We don't use the word mystery to dilute the truth. Otherwise, we over-spiritualize our existence and pretend that God didn't become man most truly, suffer a shameful death on the cross, and arise as the self-same incarnated and crucified God-man and bear his glorified humanity to heaven, to the kingdom of eternal life and unending love of true union. When we pray, truly, we pray only by means of the one who became man for our salvation. The one in whom heaven and earth are united. The church as the body of Christ must bear witness to the unity of Christ as God. In the face of a still unbelieving generation. One that's thirsty for the water of truth. We have to offer the opportunity for healing. For return. For identity. You may not be called personally to explain the mystery of the faith using fancy, untranslatable words. But you may well be provided the opportunity to share the reason for the hope that you have. In fact, you should seek that opportunity. We should always be ready for this. To share the reason for the hope that we have. In the epistle of 1 Peter, it says, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Always be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks the reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and in fear. Not fear of man, of course, but fear of God, which is awesome reverence of one who realizes that we're constantly standing in the presence of the God, the Creator of all heaven and earth, whose presence is inescapable. So may he who heals the infirm and fills what is lacking, who gives hope to the hopeless, sheds light in darkness, may he ignite us with the grace divine to be as candles lit 
bearing the fire of the Holy Spirit everywhere we go. Humble enough to share the light, confident only in the sufficiency of God's grace. Radiating the light of Christ at every movement. And adorned with the garment of truth woven from on high. The seamless garment of Christ, always, now, and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen.